Today we're going to start the seven churches. I've counted about 40-something instances of the word seven in this book of Revelation. The seven is the number of completion. And you know, the Jews have an entire methodology that they use for using numbers to interpret things. It's called gematria. And a lot of times it's very subtle. This is nothing subtle about this. This is the completion of the age of history. And we saw in the last couple of weeks in, from chapter 1 that this book is written to his servants. This is written to the doulos, the people who are the servants of God. And the question is not, are you a servant in this book? The question is, are you a faithful servant or an unfaithful servant? And that's what we're going to see in these seven churches. He's going to tell them some good things they're doing, some bad things that they're doing, and how they should improve. In most cases, it's a performance review of these churches. We saw that what really God wants us to be is faithful martyrs, witnesses, martyreo. And to be a witness means to stand, take a stand. Sometimes it will cost us our lives. Most of the time, it costs us acceptance with the world. And we saw in chapter 1 this phrase, first and last, beginning and end, was, is, is to come. And the whole idea, again, of seven, it's completion. It's the God that started it all. It's the God that has it all in His hand. It's the God that's going to finish it all. And He already already has it prescribed. So even if things get really bad, God has it under control. However, God is a paradox. If we could explain God, He wouldn't be God. And God, at the same time, is telling us in this book that He has everything under control. History's already prescribed. Turns around to the seven churches and says, You need to make a good choice. And if you make a good choice, this happens. And if you make a bad choice, that happens. So at the same time God has everything under control, we have a free will. Our free will is going to determine something very important. The quality of our witness. So this is a book of admonition. And it's a book of comfort because it tells us God has history under control. So let's start with the seven churches. Chapter 2. I'm going to try to go through these seven churches a couple of times. The first time I'm going to try to go through and look at it mainly from a historical perspective. I've already mentioned that there's two schools of thought about what these churches represent. One is that they represent periods of history. And another is that they represent churches at any point in time. You'll have seven different kinds of churches. And my proposal is it's both, of course. And what we're going to see is the representation of the seven different kinds of churches in the Roman church, the Western church, because we are still in the Roman era. Although there's a lot of the world that's not Roman. But the world has been dominated by the Roman culture. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go through and give you my take, my model, on what these seven historical eras are. And that's all it is, is a model. History is far too complex to cover 2,000 years and 45 minutes. But that's what I'm going to try to do today. And I'm going to try to use my personal examples of things I've learned to propose this model. So chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. 
And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who him, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this church of Ephesus is the very first church. Now, I've already mentioned that this seven churches go in a clockwise circle. Ephesus is the trading center. It's the import-export center, which is appropriate because in this time of history, Christianity is going from a very small group of people in Jerusalem and spreading through the whole earth like wildfire. It's a massive export operation. Dr. Anderson says that one of the reasons Christianity spread like wildfire is because it gave women so much power, gave women so much of a place in the world. Because women have historically not been treated very well, as you might know. And here it comes along where women are honored as equals in the sight of God, and it just went wildfire. But it didn't go wildfire just to the Jews, as you know. God appointed Paul specifically to take it to the Gentiles. So it's going crazy across the whole earth. This angel of the church of Ephesus, we've already mentioned this, but my proposal is each of these angels, the word, the word angelios, just means messenger. It told us in verse 1, blessed is he who reads, those who hear, and those who keep. And so the idea here is that a messenger is going to read, the people are going to hear, and they're going to be blessed if they actually do. And that's all this is. It's a witness instruction manual. Listen, hear, do. So this is just the person who's going to read the letter that's the angel. The person who reads the letter is one of the seven stars. We learned that in chapter 1. Seven stars are in the hands of God. So these messengers, God is holding them in His hands. And He has these seven lampstands that represent the seven churches in His presence. It's kind of fascinating that you have such a connection between heaven and earth. And we'll talk more about that as time goes on. So you have this church and it has all these wonderful things. And In fact, if you look at this list, patience, labor, perseverance, rooting out false teaching, it's kind of hard to top that really. And then he says, but you've lost your first love. And if you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand out, which is kind of remarkable. Because if you have this list of all these wonderful things, you would think it would be good enough. What is the first love? He doesn't say. This is the first agape. And my proposal is that this is the same kind of use of agape as we see with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Jesus is said to have loved or agape Martha, Mary. Well, If that is like love where you love the unlovable, it wouldn't make any sense. But the word agape is also used to apply to the Pharisees when it says, and the Pharisees agapied the positions of influence. So it's something you give great weight to, something you really elevate in terms of uh, what you care about. And so the Ephesian church, I would propose, has really started off caring about something that Jesus cares about too, and then suddenly the priorities got shifted. Now what is that, and what period of history is this? Well, I'm going to propose that this period of history goes from Pentecost to John's death. 
from Pentecost to John's death. So this would be roughly 33 A.D. to 100 A.D. And during this time in history, you have Christianity going from a very small group spreading through the whole earth. We went to Rome and saw the catacombs. Catacombs are tunnels underneath the ground where people buried their dead. The, The pagans buried their dead. It was common for people to go down on a birthday or a special day and light candles and have a meal with the dead. That was common. So what the Christians could do is go down and light a candle and have a communion and have church and sing and so forth. And it wouldn't necessarily be rooted out as an illegal gathering because Christianity was illegal. This to me is a little picture of what the people went through during this era. Roughly 65 A.D., Nero took Christians and put them on crosses and dipped them in tar and burned them for torchlights. We also had a guide in Rome. I asked the guide something that had always been a curiosity to me. Why did Constantine inaugurate a new capital? Rome was the center of the earth. It was the most powerful place on earth. Why would you start a new capital? Can you imagine all the bureaucracies in Washington, D.C. popping up and moving to Omaha all of a sudden? It just, I just, I couldn't understand it. And she said something very interesting. She said, Christianity had so infected the population by that time that it was clear to the emperor he was not going to be able to control people anymore because the Christians were happy to die. If you're a totalitarian dictator and people don't mind being beaten and killed, there's nothing you can do to control the population. So he went somewhere where they would worship the emperor. Very interesting answer. Well, during this time period, when the Christians are being martyred in the Colosseums and so forth, they actually had a a little bit of a problem. The church did. Because the people began to kind of angle to get martyred in the Colosseum. They're like, arrest me, arrest me. And the church had to stand up and say, no, no, don't try to get arrested. And it's because the people understood so well the message of Revelation, to be a faithful witness and the immense joy that gives God and the tremendous fulfillment that that brings to us to be a witness. But during this time period, something started to erode that orientation. I don't know what it is, but I'll make a suggestion. I'll make a suggestion that we can deduce what it might have been from the books of Romans and Galatians. What is it that Paul's fighting in the books of Romans and Galatians. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. I often play this trick on people to say, is it a good thing or a bad thing to seek to be justified by Christ? Your immediate answer is almost always yes, right? Because it is a good thing to be justified by Christ. But what if you're already a believer? and you're seeking to be justified by Christ, as the Galatians were, then is it a good thing to seek to be justified by Christ? No, because you're already justified by Christ. So if you're already justified by Christ, and you're seeking to be justified by Christ, what does that mean you're doing? You're adding, you're saying, I also must, in this case, be circumcised and fulfill the Jewish law, but it could be anything. I I also must do these religious observances. And when we do that, the inevitable result is 
the attention comes off of Jesus and onto our own actions. And that's exactly what began to infect the church. So, first period, Ephesus. Again, I'm going to come back through this and unpack a lot more stuff in these verses, I hope, in future weeks. But this first period, you have this amazing spread of Christianity, all these terrific things that people did, but they began to lose their emphasis on faith in Jesus and start adding stuff. Dr. Anderson says that in the writings of the early church fathers, he cannot find the idea of grace in those writings. That by the time of the second century, the church had already kind of fallen into legalism. So again, it's just a model. It's just a suggestion. But I think it's a reasonable suggestion based on what we see the fight being in the first century that Paul trying to stave off this orientation towards legalism. So the second church, the persecuted church, if you, if you have a Bible with headlines, it'll probably have something about each church. They call Ephesus the loveless church, which I, I think is completely unfair because you have this church that's really awesome. And by the way, these guys were so fantastic that God held them to that standard. It's amazing. I don't think you'll see a church in here that exceeds what the listing of things the Ephesians church did, but... What Jesus has against them is they're starting to revert. They're starting to go down. And once, once we get to a particular spot in our maturity, the idea of now we're going to coast is not something that the Bible really gives us leeway for. It's a really fantastic church. And of course, they did have their lamp removed eventually. Okay, the second church, the persecuted church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These th- so, by the way, I would just call this the underperforming church. Very, very high standard, but they didn't measure up. It would be like a fantastic team that wins their district and wins area, but loses to a team they had no business losing to because they were so good because they just didn't play as a team or something like that. That's the sense I get. So the persecuted church, verse 8, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to come throw you some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now again, I'm going to go through these uh, spiritual things in another time. But the historical aspect of this, I think, Smyrna, is uh, the root word is myrrh, and it means bitter. And this was a time of great bitterness in the church. And you notice that there's no real criticism here of this uh, persecuted church because this period, I would say, is the period of 100, from 100, John's death, until 330 when Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople. During that period, there were tremendous persecution of the church. It began in the first century, continued on for the next couple of centuries. And during this time period, I would say, it was Christianity defeated Rome. It defeated Rome with the blood of the martyrs. During this time period, Constantine ascended to the throne in 312, and in 313 he issued the Edict of Milan, which ended official persecution against the Christian church. 
In 410, which is the next era we'll get into, the Visigoths sacked Rome. And there was a popular notion around the Romans that it was punishment by the pagan gods for converting to Christianity. And Augustine wrote a book called The City of God to defend against that criticism. Well, people don't make criticisms without some basis. And the reality is Rome did fall to Christianity. When we were in Rome, I was asking this guide about why did they have you know, second capital. She said because they wouldn't worship the emperor anymore because of Christianity. And she showed us a uh, frieze or a, a piece of art of some sort that, sh- that showed a historical instance that may or may not be true, but it's indicative of this idea she had of the Constantine handing the keys to Rome to the bishop of Rome when he left to go to Constantinople. And the idea is really the church became the dominant force at the end of this period of persecution. And it was, I think, uh, a time where uh, Christians showed us what it means to really take a stand. And all Jesus asked them to do is just stay faithful until death because they were under persecution. Yes? This is that's the church in Ephesus, is yeah. But you, it is remarkable because here you got the church in Ephesus represents this first century where they're spreading the gospel, they're standing for truth. But in my interpretation, they're letting legalism in, and God's saying, if you let legalism in, you're gonna your witness is gone, which is kind of kind of uh, remarkable. But in the second one, there's no criticism. Just hold on is all he says. So this, this I would say, is this second era. And during this time period, we're going to get to chapter 17, and we're going to see there's seven uh, kings, five have been, one is, and one is to come. And I'm going to propose when we get there, unless I change my mind in the meanwhile, that this, that mainly happens during these first two eras where we have these, these kings. It's their representative kings. Okay, so then we go to the compromising church. I'm going to call it the syncretizing church. And that's Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the white stone a new name written, which no one except him who receives it. So Pergamos, the third city going up the coastline. And Pergamos was the capital of this Roman province of Asia. Ephesus, the import-export center. Pergamos, the capital. So it was the center of Roman power. And so it's interesting, it says, this is where Satan dwells. And in previous sessions, we talked about this instance in Daniel where the angel comes to tell Daniel the answer to the dream and he got held up for 21 days by the prince of Persia 
who is the angel over the Persian Empire, and Daniel works for the physical king, and this tremendous connection between the the spiritual and the physical. So even though there is a Roman governor that actually rules in Pergamos, what Jesus says is that's where Satan dwells because there's this connection, and, and Satan is still the prince of this world even though he's a lame duck at this point in time. And he says, I've got some few things against you. There are some faithful things you've done. There's some good stuff going on, but I've got a few things against you. The key of which is you've got Balaam in there, and you're tolerating Balaam. Now, Balaam was a character in the Old Testament. He was a prophet. Some controversy about whether he's a true prophet or a false prophet. He was a prophet that spoke on behalf of God, and God dealt with him. He wanted to keep his prophetic station which in which he understood, I can't say something that's not true. But he also wanted the reward that was offered to him for cursing the Israelites. So he went to try to figure out a way to curse the Israelites, get this big reward. God wouldn't let him do it. He blessed the Israelites. So he went to the king and said, I tell you what, if you will get the Moabite women to go over and seduce the men into sexual immorality... God will judge them himself, and you'll curse them that way. So he, he, he tried to keep his prophetic office and get the money from the world. So there's syncretism. And I'm going to propose this era is represented from 330 when Constantine started the new church, and left the West kind of to the Catholic church, if you will, to 800. 800 is when Charlemagne ascended the throne of the Holy Roman Emperor. So we got a reconstitution of the Roman Church, this time a Christian empire. And we'll, that'll, that'll go into the next era. So this syncretistic church, 330 to 800, we can see in many ways. The episode that kind of brought this home to me was when we were in Greece. And we had a guide in Greece. And the guide was a mocker. But he made a good point. He said, well, we in Greece, we're all Greek Orthodox. We used to be pagan. Back when we were pagan, we were very ignorant. We used to have this 50-year-old guy with a beard and a pitchfork that we would worship to keep us safe at sea if we were sailors. We don't have those superstitions anymore, no. Now we have a 50-year-old guy with a beard and a staff called St. Christopher who keeps us safe if we're sailors. Now, back when we were pagans and we were ignorant, we would go give money to the priest in order to have him go behind in the temple and say the magic words and come out and we'd get what we want. We don't do those silly things anymore. No, now we go to church and we give money to the priest who goes behind the divider and says the magic words and turns the, the grape juice into, into the blood of Christ and then we get the magic stuff. But, you know, he's really got a point. What happened during this era is when Christianity became the official religion, suddenly you have all these pagans. You probably had maybe 10% Christians, and suddenly now everybody wants to be a Christian, and you've got to fit in. So what do you do? Now, some of this, I would say, is completely legitimate. Let's, let's say you're the leader, and you've come out of this persecution, so you've proven yourself. And someone comes to you and says, well, what do we do with all these people? They all want to come into Christianity, but they're still doing the winter solstice where they do all the pagan stuff and the pagan you know, sexual immorality and stuff. What do we do? Let's substitute it. We'll, we'll, put, in, we'll put in Christmas there. We'll, we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus. Well, Jesus was born in April. 
Well, yeah, but this it's just a celebration, right? We're not trying to be historically accurate. We'll, we'll put a substitute. Good idea. Well, I would say that is a good idea. Well, what do we do about Easter? It's the really bad one. I mean, they, they got the lilies that look like a, a, a penis going into a vagina, and they got the rab- rabbits, and they got the eggs, and they have all these pagan, you know, really bad, sexually immoral. Well, why don't we turn that into uh, celebrating the resurrection? And we'll say new life instead of fertility, we'll have a different kind of new life, spiritual new life. Great idea. And, and these things worked. I mean, you can still kind of see the vestiges of the pagan stuff kind of bubbling around. But for the most part, they became Christian things. Other things didn't work so good. Because the people wanted a human that they could interact with. So we take these guys who had proven themselves during this time of persecution. We'll have them be the intermediary. We'll go ahead and have a priest. I mean, they're used to having a priest intermediate. We'll go ahead and have a priest, a Christian priest. And these guys are trustworthy. Well, now what you've done is create a position of power. And when you create a position of power, the most unscrupulous among us are the ones who will eventually figure out how to get that power. And that's what happened. You went from people who are shepherding to people who are controlling and pilfering. And these same things that would drove the martyrs in the first two centuries to say, hey, persecute me, hey, I, I, I want to die in the Colosseum, became now fundraising tactics. If you touch this splinter that we got from John the Baptist's grave, you'll get to avoid all those bad things that might happen to you, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, and you'll get the good stuff. Well, if you have the priest who you've been told is speaking on behalf of God telling you this stuff, maybe you believe it. We visited a, a cathedral in Chartres. I don't know how you say it in French. C-H-A-R-T-E-S. Chartres. And it was built in 1100 or something like that. And it was built in just like a decade or so. When normally these, these cathedrals take 150 years to build. And, uh, well, how did it get built so fast? Well, normally they go just at the pace the money's coming in. But this cathedral had a phenomenal relic. And everybody wanted to get in on this relic. So, so now we've gone from, we have this relationship with Christ, and we want to do whatever we can do to get the approval of Christ, to, I want in on a relic. And it's this syncretism of paganism coming in. Augustine is the kind of father of modern theology in the West. Not in the East, but in the West. And what Augustine did, arguably, at least this is my assertion, is bring Neoplatonism into Christianity and syncretized it. He had a lot of ideas that just aren't biblical that he brought in from his kind of Greek uh, Platonic thought, thought process. And so we have syncretism that comes in, and this church is the corrupt church because they're trying to figure out a way to make it work, Balaam. You know, make it work with the world, make it still work with God. So the next phase is Thyatira, the corrupt church, your heading might say. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first, nevertheless. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. 
Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depth of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is Thyatira, the corrupt church. But again, you know, there's, there's good things that are in all of these eras. It's not that the whole church is corrupt. It's that there's corruption in the church. And we see during this time period, I'm going to propose as eight, the time period of 800 from when Charlemagne ascended the throne in order to be the... Holy Roman Emperor until 1517, which is when Luther tacked a 95 thesis to the door. And there's a few things that happened during this time period that might give some some color to what's going on during this era. One is in 1384, Wycliffe died. Now, Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. Wycliffe was later dug up, you know, his remains were dug up and he was uh, defiled because he had done this terrible thing of putting the Bible into English. William Tyndall followed on with Wycliffe. So Tyndall, Tyndall wanted to put it in the common language and he was actually uh, murdered as a result of this. He was strangled and then burned at the stake. And what Tyndall wanted to do was to um, if that's in 1536. What Tyndall's uh, stated objective was, I want the plowboys in England to know more about the Bible than the, than the bishops do. Which wasn't much of a what, lift at that point in time because the bishops had just become like a corrupt uh, political office that had kind of the highest bidder got. Which again is the corrupt church. And so these guys are sowing the seed for reform during this era and you can see that now the church has become a church where control and power is the key thing because we can't let the Bible get into the hands of the people lest the power of the priest be diminished. So we've gone from faithful church, the persecuted church where these bishops are showing their mettle to these bishops then being given the authority during this syncretistic era and now they've become completely corrupt rulers. A personal experience that we had that kind of illustrates this is Mirabel Gardens in Salzburg, Austria. If you've watched The Sound of Music and they're singing Do Re Mi, Do a Deer, a Female, and they're going through, they're running, one of the scenes when they're doing the Do Re Mi song, they're going through this really beautiful garden and they're all running along by the fountain and everything. Well, that garden is in a palace in Salzburg. It was built by Wolf Dietrich. Wolf Dietrich was one of the prince bishops that ruled Salzburg, the, the city and the area around it. And that for hundreds of years, Salzburg was rent, ruled by a prince bishop. This is a guy in, in whose office is vested the bishop of the church as well as the prince of the government. Well, Wolf Dietrich built this palace and this garden for his mistress. 
because the official Catholic Church, you know, had you had uh, celibacy of the priests and the bishops. Well, this guy had eleven children by this mistress. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. There is the castle. He built the castle for him. It's it's that's not a secret. But everybody's got to pretend that he's the holy man who's celibate while he has this, you know, 11 kids by this, by this mistress. Well, that's corrupt. It's corrupt to say one thing publicly and do something else. It's not even private. It's just like, well, it's like a lot of things going on in our political world, isn't it? It's, some things never change. Say one thing, do another. Now, of course, there's some really good things that happen in this. You've got people like St. Francis of Assisi in, 12, in the 1200s. So it's not, it's not that there's all bad, but the official church during this time period basically just became a control scheme. They took confession, which is a way to get cleansing, and turned it into a cash machine. They took the ordinance of communion, and turn it into a weekly necessity that you have to pay money for. It, it, it was a corrupt era. So, then the next church, the dead church. This one may surprise you a bit. I'm going to propose it in my model. It's just a model. To the angel in the church of Sardis, right, these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Therefore, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I would guess that one of the reasons why you have people that say, no, this really isn't a historical thing, is because of of this church and the Laodicean church, both of which kind of hit home. But this dead church, you note, has a reputation that it's alive. And I'm going to propose that this era is 1517, the nailing of the 95 Thesis, until 1727, which is a little bit of an arcane number, but that is the, the, the year of the Moravian Revival, which I'll talk about in a little in a minute. The Reformation was taught to me as a time of God, like a golden age of the church. I'm a big Francis Schaeffer fan. And in How Should We Then Live, he pointed out, I think accurately, how many things from the Reformation uh, unwound this superstitious morass that had taken place during this corrupt church era and brought truth back in. And when you bring truth back in, you bring all sorts of wonderful things to the world. And I think that's a totally appropriate thing, which is why I think this era gets its reputation to be alive. But it's dead. Terry and I, years ago, I think it was our 20th anniversary, which is almost 20 years ago now, we went to Austria and Switzerland. I'd always want to go see the Alps. I'd flown over them in my 20s. I always wanted to go down there and see what they looked like. She never wanted to go because when she was a kid, she went to a high school in Germany, and they always had to go skiing in the Alps on vacation. And they, wanted, they wanted to go to the beach. So she was, to her, the Alps meant just bummer, you know, from her standpoint. 
But then she one day said, you know, I was 16 when I thought that. I probably would not look at it that way anymore. Let's go. So we went, and of course our quick start kind of way, we got a car, and I said, you want to, which way you want to go? So we, we just kind of had some basic ideas in mind. We just started wandering. And we went to Austria, and we went to Switzerland. And what we learned that I had not known is that Austria exiled like 15,000, 20,000 people during the Reformation. We're not having any Reformation in this country. So it stayed pure Catholic all the way through. And Switzerland was the Reformation. John Calvin was in Geneva. Bern was the capital center, and it's where like the main monastery was. And in the east you had Zurich, which was Zwingli who was one of the great reformers. It was the Reformation. So there you have them side by side. And we went through all the churches in Austria and they were museums for all practical purposes. They were dead as a doornail. I mean, people still came some, but they're mostly just relics. And then we went to Switzerland and the church there literally was a museum. They charged you money to go in and see it. It wasn't even a functioning church anymore. And it was just dead and sterile. And all the vestiges I saw was dead and sterile. And we got back to the U.S. And I ran into Earl Rodmacher, who was a guy that's had real positive impact on our church, now deceased. And I said, Dr. Rodmacher, was the Reformation an era with no grace? He said, oh yeah, there was no grace in the Reformation. I was like, how come nobody ever told me that? A little episode that might illustrate this is John Calvin. Calvin, as you might know, was a lawyer who took Augustine's writings and sort of translated them into his era. And so by translating those writings into his era, he came up with his institutes, which he then added to as time went on. And that has become kind of the Protestant foundation for Western theology, whereas Augustine is kind of the father of Catholic theology. So they basically say the same thing a different way, is what it ends up being. And John Calvin had a guy, Michael Servetus, Michael Servetus. So this would be in 1535. Michael Servetus uh, taught some stuff. He was deemed a heretic. And uh, so he happened to be wandering through Geneva and went to church in uh, Geneva. And they had him arrested, tried, convicted, and killed. Because, of, among other things, he was criticizing John Calvin's theology. And there's, there's documented letters where Calvin's saying, you know, this guy needs to be killed. Well, how's that so different than the corrupt church era? I mean, they, they, so they killed Tyndall because he wanted to take their power away. What's the difference? And I, and I think what we have is this era where there's tremendous positive things that happen. I mean, the pilgrims, 1620 in this era, they came over to America. But you know what? The pilgrims didn't have a theology we would really be comfortable with. It's not that, well, they didn't do some wonderful things. I mean, look at the courage they had. And, and they came across because they didn't want their kids to be corrupted. But in Bradford's Plymouth Colony, he mentions this funny guy named William, Roger Williams that came through, had some odd notions. Well, Roger Williams is actually the founder of religious liberty as we know it in the United States. He founded Rhode Island and the, and the uh, Providence Plantations. And he, what he said was, you know, if we have to force people to become Christians, then we haven't really introduced them to the gospel. Why don't we try to live it in such a way that they want to copy us? Well, that sounds natural to our ears, doesn't it? And that's because Roger Williams 
innovation is really what took root in America. So this dead church had some really good things, but it was, I think, full of legalism. Maybe the grown-up seed from what started to take root in Ephesus. Okay, so I have run out of time. I thought I could get all this in in one session. I made it through five. So what I'm going to do is go ahead and stop here, and next, next week I'll start with the Philadelphia church and Laodicean church and then go back and start going back through again with looking at the spiritual stuff. What do these rewards mean? What do these, um, what do these um, criticisms mean? And how are these personal to us? So we've got the underperforming church era. We got the persecuted church era, we got the syncretistic church era, got the corrupt church era, and the you got a reputation or a lie, but you're actually dead church era. The next two are going to be the faithful church, the church with no criticism, the second the only other no criticism church in addition to the persecuted church, and then our era, the Laodicean church. By the way, Revelation had a hard time getting into the New Testament because there was one church that really wanted to hold out that it didn't think it should... Can you guess which one it was? Laodicea, yeah. Okay. God, thank you for this amazing book, the opportunity to learn what it means to be a faithful witness, this instances in history that show us what these mistakes look like, and also the amazing remnant, these, these faith, this stream of faithful people that all through this era, even though maybe there's corruption in the church, there's also tremendous... A purity in the church as well with people that are resisting as we go through. And as next week we unpack this Laodicean church, we know, Lord, that we, can, we don't have to succumb to the Spirit in this age and we can be true and faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you'll give us uh, the kind of insight and to be the sort of people that you praise all through these uh, era, these churches. In Jesus' name, amen.